Are you sitting comfortably? Good. Then I'll begin. You're listening to Splendid Chats, recorded live at the Gasometer Hotel Melbourne on the 13th of October, 2013. Hello. Oh, hello up there. Hello upstairs. Hi, everyone. Oh. We are recording your sounds as well to go in the podcast because that's what makes it feel like you're really there when you're listening to it later on. Because <laughs> they are, they are really you here. You are really here. <laughs> But if you listen to it again later, it'll be like you're really here again. <laughs> it'll be like time travel. So we're pretty, I think we're pretty much ready to go, John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a big house. There's only two of us um, here, though. We do need, of course, our other co-host, Petra. We do need Petra. There? Where is Petra? Petra. We need Petra. Petra. What? Where am I? What? What the hell is this place? What? Where am I? I demand you tell me right now where I am. Gasometer. What? Gasometer. What? Splendid chaps. So what? It's Splendid Chaps. Oh, that's not even a real name. The Brigadier never said that. It's not canon. This is Neris written all over it. A wedding dress. I'm on my way to record a podcast. What do you think, Dumbo? Thought maybe you're in fancy dress. Or drunk. <laughs> or in drag. I'll have you. I've got your number. I'll have you. I mean, this is weird, right? Because you're not special, you're not powerful, you're not connected, you're not clever, you're not you're not important. I'll show you important. It's time for Splendid Chaps, the podcast that's rude and not entirely ginger. Please welcome your hosts, Ben McKenzie and John Richards. How your impression of Donna is just to get really ochre. <laughs> well. <laughs> you can't sit down, that's you hilarious. <laughs> I also can't breathe. <laughs> yeah, visual podcast ahoy! <laughs> I'd also like to say, I decided to do this about 24 hours ago. So all those brides who spend, like, years planning their wedding... <laughs> 50 bucks, tw- 24 hours. Just saying. I think that's your new reality TV show, isn't it? Oh, shop bride coming to Channel 10. <laughs> we, we do continue the tradition of being the world's most stupidly visual audio podcast. <laughs> Uh, and, and again, it's nice to see. Again, you have a most amazing suit. I there. really love this, uh, and it's only half the suit, unfortunately, because I have to get the uh, the trousers um, altered. But I found this in an op shop a year ago, and I was hanging on to it for the right <laughs> time. I'm worried that my pseudo David Tennant look makes me look more like I'm auditioning for the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, <laughs> or at least that's the impression that I get. Mid-90s scar joke, yeah. Um, so we're, we're here, of course, to talk about the David Tennant period. We're here to talk about sex in Doctor Who. Uh, that's 
That's pretty much what we're here for. That is yeah. what we're here for. Should yeah. we get on with it? Would you like to get on with it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so. Having a crowd at your beck and call is so good. <laughs> you guys, you've got to really got to try it sometime. So let's throw the fast return switch and see what far-flung, distant past we're going to today. Petra? Today we head back to those long-lost days of 2006 to 2010. And I'm not going to lie to you, it isn't pretty. It's a fairly peaceful period, apart from conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, Lebanon, Israel, Palestine, the Congo, Nigeria, Georgia, Chechnya, Rwanda, Sudan, Colombia, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, Chad and Algeria. And that's not including terrorist actions and coups, of which there are many. The Doomsday Clock, a symbolic representation of the threat of nuclear annihilation, which has been run since 1947 by the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists at the University of Chicago, moved two minutes forward in 2007, putting it at 11.55pm. Oh, and there's a global financial crisis in there as well. Politics takes a turn for the right, unlike Donna, with the rise of right-wing parties throughout Europe. The H1N1 swine flu pandemic kills at least 80,000, according to the World Health Organization. The deadliest bushfires in Australian history happened on Black Saturday, February 7, 2009. The fires came after Melbourne recorded the highest ever temperature of any capital city in Australia, 46 degrees. And Pluto isn't even a planet anymore, being demoted to dwarf planet in 2006. The solar system now officially has eight planets and three dwarf planets, making all alien guidebooks out of date. There must be some good stuff, though. Um... Uh, keyboard Cat, an internet sensation keyboard cat becomes famous in 2007, although curiously the video of him playing a keyboard was filmed in 1984 and Keyboard Cat himself had died in 1987. Oh, it's depressing again. Incidentally, Keyboard Cat has an agent. His name is Ben Lashes and his clients also include Nyan Cat and Grumpy Cat. Yes, Ben Lashes is an agent who specialises in internet cats. I am not making this up. This is what the future looks like. In 2006, Michelle Bachelet is elected as the first female president of Chile. Julia Gillard becomes Australia's first female prime minister in 2010. And in 2008, Barack Obama became the first African-American president of the United States, as well as the first Kenyan president, Indonesian president, Muslim president, and he's probably also a shapeshifter or something. In 2006, Australian scientist Ian Fraser developed a vaccine for the human papillomavirus, a common cause of cervical cancer. Good work, Ian. My vulvic cul-de-sac thanks you. <laughs> CERN's Large Hadron Collider was completed in 2008 and became fully operational in 2010 when it did not, to the surprise of some, create a black hole and destroy the world. Good work, CERN. My vulvic cul-de-sac thanks you. <laughs> 2009's Avatar becomes the first feature film to gross more than $2 billion and spawns two sequels, 2011's The Smurfs and 2013's The Smurfs 2. Gosh, people really love those Smurfs. 
popular things in this period include the gaming-inspired musical style known as chiptune, skinny jeans, and the debut of TV shows Breaking Bad, Mad Men, and, uh, Pact to the Rafters. Also new on our screens are the Sarah Jane Adventures and Torchwood. Unpopular things include children's show Blue Peter rigging one of their competitions, leading to the downfall of Western civilization. And Grange Hill, which was inexplicably still being made until it wasn't in 2008. Finally, the colours of the year for this period, as chosen by the Pantone company, were, in order, Sand Dollar, Chili Pepper, Blue Iris, Mimosa and Turquoise. But you probably knew that already. Well, I certainly felt like I was there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you still feel like you're here, John? Uh, no, I feel like I was three years ago or oh, something yeah. now. Yeah. 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 Okay, so... Let's move on. Uh, we're going to talk David Tennant. We're going to talk about sex. We'll need guests to do that. Mm. Petra, why don't you tell us who our guests are? But of course. Our first splendid chap is a writer, spoken word artist and burlesque performer. She was previously the sex columnist for youth magazine VoiceWorks and her erotic fiction has been published in anthologies including Little Raven, The Mammoth, Book of Best New Erotica and Eroticus Magazine. Her first solo collection, The Mercy of Strange Men, was published in April 2013. She co-founded Melbourne's first fat burlesque troupe, Vava Boomba, and performs burlesque as the memorable and occasionally horrifying Harlot Bronte. Our other splendid chap describes himself as a writer, broadcaster, theatre-goer, film lover and a classic failed actor. He's worked with various arts organisations in Melbourne, including five years as Artistic Director of Express Media, seven years on the board of the Melbourne Fringe Festival and work with Next Wave, the National Young Writers Festival and the Melbourne Queer Film Festival. Since 2005, he has hosted the weekly arts program Smart Arts on community radio station 3RRR and is also the national reviews editor for Arts Hub. While he doesn't have a burlesque name, he has performed spoken word as a support act for both Jella Biafra and Bikini Kill. One of them describes herself as a conflicted David Tennant fangirl, while the other's first crush was on Sergeant Benton. They're Amy Nichols and Richard Watts. Hello. Hello. Why, hello there. <laughs> oh, you, you started the sex already. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm actually suffering from a cold, so my voice has dropped an octave. But uh, that does make for the sex, so... Uh... And he can actually already see what you're wearing, so there's no point him asking. I like the idea that your sexy voice and your cold voice are the same thing, though. <laughs> well, I don't know. Come over sometime and we'll work that out when I'm healthier. <laughs> Saucy minx. So, so it begins. Um, it's the cough medicine, sorry. <laughs> well, uh, you're already talking, so how about, Richard, you tell us, how did you get into Doctor Who? As far as I remember, and th- one of the challenges with being an Australian Doctor Who fan in the 70s was that it got repeated so many times that your memories of it all started to blur and coalesce together. Um, but according to my mum, who has a much more reliable memory where these things are concerned, uh, a rainy winter day in about 1970, 71, staying at my grandparents' pl- 
place. Um, and my sister and I were bickering and fighting because we'd been cooped up inside all day. Grandparents getting pissed off. Mum said, oh, I'll put the TV on, that'll calm them down. And Doctor Who came on and I was enthralled, my sister was enthralled, so were my mum and dad. And we collectively as a family became fans and I've been a fan ever since. Do you know what story it was? I don't. I really, really wish I do. I know it was a John Pertwee story. Um, and so uh, the third Doctor will forever and always be my Doctor, even though he's not necessarily my favourite Doctor. And Amy? Um, I have really, really vague memories of um, watching Doctor Who with my older sister, who was a big fan as a small child, and thinking of it as the scary show. Um, and my, I think my lasting childhood memory of it, which um, seems to be a bit of a common theme with um, Splendor Chaps guests, is the Time Lords Doctor and the TARDIS. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of became a fan quite recently, a few years ago, because um, everybody I knew was watching Doctor Who and I caved to peer pressure quite easily. So <laughs> um, I was like, OK, maybe I need to get into this. So um, David Tennant was actually my first Doctor and I've sort of been going forward and back and forward again and etc. since then. So you say you started with David Tennant, Amy. Have, did you go back and watch Christopher Eccleston as well? Yes, I did. Because I've noticed a real... Someone was telling me the other day that they know all these people who wanted to get into Doctor Who and they've heard about... They know who David Tennant is, so they start with him and they don't go back and watch Christopher Eccleston. They just leave him out. Blasphemy. <laughs> I think that's really sad. I really like him. He's wonderful. Yeah. Oh, well. But we're not here to talk about him today, so he's dead to us. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> today we are here to talk about the 10th Doctor, David Tennant, so uh, perhaps we could learn a little bit more about him. David John MacDonald was born on April 18, 1971, in Bathgate, just west of Edinburgh, right in the middle of the John Pertwee six-parter Colony in Space. While his parents encouraged him to pursue a conventional line of work, he was absurdly single-minded about his career, telling them at three years old that he wanted to be an actor because he loved Doctor Who. He entered the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama at 16, one of their youngest ever students. There was already a David MacDonald on the books, so he chose a stage name after reading about Pet Shop Boys frontman Neil Tennant in Smash Hits magazine. His first professional work was appearing in an anti-smoking film for the Glasgow Health Board in 1987 and a ghost story, The Secret of Croftmore, for the children's anthology series Drama Rama in 1988. Post-graduation, he played a hitman for political Scottish theatre company 784 and King Arthur in a production of Edinburgh where he received a review so terrible it made him cry. His first big break came in 1994 with a lead role in BBC Scotland's hit series Taken Over the Asylum. He then appeared in many more television programs, including guest roles in The Bill, The Mrs. Bradley Mysteries, and Randall and Hopkirk, Deceased, and major roles in ITV River Police sitcom Duck Patrol, BBC black comedy musical Blackpool, Russell T. Davies' modern retelling of Casanova, and the 2005 live remake of The Quatermass Experiment. One of his earliest film appearances was opposite Christopher Eccleston in 1996 Jude, challenging his Doctor Who predecessor to prove his intellect. Other early film appearances include Stephen Fry's Bright Young Things and Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Always on the lookout for opportunities to get involved in the world of Doctor Who, Tennant managed to talk his way into a minor role in the 40th anniversary web drama Scream of the Sharker when he discovered it being recorded in the studio next door. He also appeared in several big Finnish audio adventures and in 2005 achieved his dream when he was cast as the 10th Doctor, debuting in the first season finale, The Parting of the Ways. 
His more recent roles, including returning to the Royal Shakespeare Company for Much Ado About Nothing with Catherine Tate and Hamlet with Patrick Stewart. The films St. Trinian's 2, How to Train Your Dragon, The Decoy Bride, Fright Night and The Pirates Band of Misfits. And television programs Learners, Einstein and Eddington, Single Father and Broadchurch. He will next be seen in Postman Pat, the movie. <laughs> no, seriously. And what we did on our holiday, a partially improvised comedy from the makers of BBC sitcom Outnumbered. While he never discusses his personal life, he has found love twice on the Doctor Who set, first with Sophia Miles and then with Georgia Moffat. He and Georgia are married and have two children with a third on the way, plus another from Georgia's previous relationship, whom Tennant has officially adopted. Georgia, who played the Doctor's daughter in the episode ambiguously titled The Doctor's Daughter, is actually the daughter of another doctor, Peter Davison, making the fifth doctor the tenth doctor's father-in-law. There is nothing mind-blowing about this whatsoever. And that is David Tennant. I love the way it's, he's done this Royal Shakespeare Company and then here's some terrible, terrible movies. Like yeah. He just seems to have appalling taste Postman in movies. Postman Pat the movie. That's, a, that's an actual thing that is happening. And Centridian's two. Two. <laughs> yeah. And he's one of the people not in drag in that film. <laughs> so he drew the short straw, I think. Amy, let's start with you. As a doctor, do you think he's a grouse doctor or the grousest? That's a tough question to start with. Um... Look, I do still have a lot of love for the Tense Doctor. I've sort of... It's... Look, it's complicated. Well, let, let, let's start with love. Let's start okay, with love. Well, let's What's your love, love about Tense Doctor? Facebook, if we look up you and the Tense Doctor, it just says, it's complicated. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Like, I do enjoy David Tennant's presence very much. I like the energy that he puts into the role. I kind of describe him as, like, the manic pixie time lord because he... Um, <laughs> I feel like he's doing like a masculine version of that manic pixie dream girl kind of trope and it's about time ladies who enjoy gentlemen got their own version of that, I feel. And, you know, I just, you know, I do find him an attractive man and I like his suits. So um, I, I enjoy watching him very much on screen. And Richard, what do you feel of the tenth doctor? I'm, I'm conflicted where David Tennant and the Tenth Doctor are concerned. Um, to begin with, I, I, I adored his characterisation. I thought it was kind of nimble and electric and exciting, but it, as it went on, he kind of outstayed his welcome for me a little bit, and in the same way that Tom Baker was increasingly no longer reined in by directors as he played the role and made it more his own, for me there's a sense that Tennant is overacting too much by the end of his tenure, um, and directors are getting too scared to rein him in and, and say no, because he's so influential and so important. So, uh, look, if Tennant's Doctor had actually regenerated um, a couple of stories earlier, I, I would have welcomed that. But as it was, yeah, I, I was kind of like, oh, he's gone good. <laughs> well, that's harsh. You've, you've, you've started out on the harsh end. <laughs> well, it's, I, I, I did cry when he left, though, I should point out. So I, I said I was conflicted. I, um, I did cry. <laughs> I, I really... See, I went on a similar journey to you, only my journey was much shorter. Like, I really liked him when he came in. And the thing... I, I think it's usually you bring up Tom Baker, because for me, he is most like Tom Baker. I see a lot of similar mannerisms, which is odd because, you know, he is self-confessed, he loves um, 
Peter Davison just as Stephen Moffat does. But he, he, yeah, I feel like he was really channeling Tom Baker in a lot of the ways that he'll talk to himself and then realise that he's talking to himself. He's very self-aware of his own quirks as a character. Um, but I, for me, that, even that first year, he started out well... But he and Rose, I think, was the problem for me. It got better in the Martha and Donna seasons, but they, they just they just developed into this like smug pair of gits. And I'm just like, I'm just like, look, I liked you before. What have you done? What if what's happened to you? Where have you gone wrong? Um, Actually, I don't know we're straying from one side already, but Rose, I wanted to ask about this because Rose did seem to go from being a character that people loved, you know, she was she was a character people adored, to a character people seemed to hate. And I wonder whether some of that is jealousy, that um, because the relationship between Rose and the Doctor, when it's uh, Eccleston's Doctor, they're just friends, they're really good mates, and they're hanging out together, and then suddenly it shifts into a romantic relationship. And I wonder whether there's, A, some jealousy on behalf of... Uh, of gay fanboys and, um, and straight fangirls going, oh, I don't like her now because she's shagging the doctor. Um, but, and, and also just a, a sense that she then becomes the, the object of blame in some ways. There's a, a, a kind of transference, if you like, that um, we get to blame Rose for, for stuffing things up when perhaps it was the, the, the screenwriters and the showrunner who stuffed oh. up that relationship. I, I think it's totally this, the screenwriters because it, they both, I th- for me, both of them developed the same annoying character traits at the same time, which was that they would be, get very smug and they would take things for granted. I mean, in Tooth and Claw, that whole business where she's trying to get Queen to say I'm not amused and just takes it way too far is just awful mm. and then they get called on it near the end of the episode and I was like great character arc they've done their smug business they've been put in their place they've learned from it no while they're on their way back to the TARDIS they're still making jokes about how maybe the royal family are werewolves and hey, isn't all this a laugh and I'm like you just got put in your place by Queen Victoria who told you you're too smug and you're making fun of dangerous situations where people die you have lost that sort of it's almost like they know they're in a TV show when they do that kind of stuff. And they don't come out of it. So I can't believe you've now put me in the position where I have to defend David Tennant. Because um, <laughs> I came in going, I might just be quiet for this one because I really don't like the David Tennant years at all. But I've got to say, no, you're wrong. Because... I actually really liked that. I actually, I, I, I much prefer the show to have the characters having fun adventures than the characters angsting and crying and, and you know, and I feel, to me, that second series is, is to me, I, I, I know it's the one that fans seem to dislike. It's my favourite of the Tenant years because it's the one that both has proper thought-out adventures that seem to have beginnings, middles and ends, which sometimes the show is not good at doing anymore. Um, but it's also got the one which I think has an arc that works best out of all the series, which is the bringing in the parallel universe and bringing it back again at the end. It's not as overt an arc as other seasons do, but it's much more rewarding. And I remember in um, the Age of Steel, one for the first time kind of going, oh, now I know why we've got Rose's mum and dad, because for the first time, you know, in order to care about them in the alternate universe, I need to know who they are. Mm. And I did care about them because I, I, I always think the show's treated Jackie very badly. Yeah. Um, and we'll get this in sex, but Jackie seems to get mocked for having a sex life. It's almost like, oh, how tawdry. She's old and she likes sex. But in the same way that kids laugh about their well, parents having is, sex and, the, and it grosses them out, I think that's yes, fairly successfully just into that. The show feels like it's aimed at a 15-year-old that it has this sort of 15-year-old female kind of idea behind it. It's almost like it's, 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 
in many ways, Rose is this ultimate Mary Sue character that I think we're meant to identify ourselves in. And even down to, oh, mum likes sex, that's disgusting. You know, it, it feels like a show that's kind of got that underneath it constantly. I'm precious and special. He loves me more than the others. I know he's older, but he's got a car. You know, it's... Um, and, I, and, I, and I feel the whole show seems to be pretty much that. that. That's what it feels like to me. And that's one of the only seasons, I think, where that's downplayed slightly. <laughs> Amy, how do you feel about The Doctor and Rose? Look, I, um, I kind of liked... Martha's kind of my companion for the Tenant era. Um, she's my girl in a lot of ways. I actually... Um, I don't mind the Tenth um, Doctor and Rose pairing at all. Like, I... Um, I do think that there's some good arcs within that and um, I am slightly frightened by some of the fandom that's like, Rose, it's voodoo doll kind of thing. Like, it's it's not real, guys. I like it too. (laughs) I like it too, but it's not real. But, um, yeah, there's a lot of um, fandom kind of angst and, yeah, there is that kind of, I think, why isn't it me kind of thing and in a lot of fandom which doesn't really sit all that well with me. Is this where we cross the line? Because I've noticed, like, particularly if you go on to, say, Tumblr, there are people who are... They're not really... They're not... Well, they are Tenth Doctor fans, but really they're David Tennant fans Mm -hmm. and they watch him him in anything he's in, which is fair enough, he's a great actor, but they also... They just really have a big crush on David Tennant. How many... Just actually, just out of interest, how many people here think he's a bit of a hottie? How many... Like, dude, you can put your hands up as well. It's totally fine. So, for the visual podcast... For the visual podcast, it's... About half the room would stick it to him. (laughs) Can I just point out that in 2006, uh, the UK gay newspaper, The Pink Paper, their readers voted Tennant the sexiest man in the universe. And they voted him over David Beckham and Brad Pitt. Now, certainly I think he's sexier than David Beckham and Brad Pitt, but I don't think he's the sexiest man in the universe. I, I did notice, that, you know, I was watching some of the fourth series last night, and the show weirdly keeps telling you he's attractive. I know, it freaks All me out. It's odd, it's really All odd. Characters time. just keep going, well. almost like they're a 15-year-old girl. Whoa, he's sexy, <laughs> I'd so do him, he's got a car. But it's... Um, <laughs> It's, it's just so strange that the show keeps telling you he's attractive. And, and I was and finding it really attractive. It, it, it keeps telling us that he's kind of reinforcing the whole lonely God trope as well. That, um, and there's a great line in, in Gridlock, which I think kind of sums up, for me, a bit of the, the, uh, the Tenth Doctor's character. Um, uh, Valerie uh, and, and Brannigan in their car. Um, Valerie is, he's completely insane. And Brannigan, that and a bit magnificent. <laughs> And that, I, that line really resonates for me because there is something about kind of the fact that they're, they're holding up Tennant's characterisation as he is kind of like the magnificent kind of swashbuckling hero on one level, but he's also got that level of, as we said earlier, the, the Tom Baker kind of madness about him as well. And it, I don't think that those two elements necessarily always sit well together in the, in the, in the, the way that the Tenth Doctor is written. Actually, it is interesting because this is part of that whole... I think uh, this period in the show, it's probably more a fantasy show than it's ever been before, yeah. I suppose, like a science fiction show. And it's particularly paying into tropes of 
things like Buffy and Angel and, uh, you know, uh, sort of um, Twilight hadn't happened, I think, quite yet. As a, but that idea of the, the, the hurt man who's hundreds and hundreds of years old who has a crush on a 16-year-old girl, which is apparently not creepy. <laughs> Note the word apparently. I think that's quite important. And it's, it's interesting because I remember saying to someone once about True Blood and I said, but don't you think it's just really creepy that this is a man who's hundreds of years old? And he went, no, no, because he looks hot. That's the distraction. That is the distraction. And I think it's interesting that Tennant, like you were saying, or like we said in the last show, that with Eccleston there was that sense that it could be a friendship, it could be a relationship, you could read it as you want. With Tennant it becomes quite clearly it's a relationship. And people have also said now with um, Capaldi that they won't be able to do that anymore. And they went, because he looks old. And you're going, ew. The, ew, yeah. Although he does have yeah. a car. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even though the character is the same age as he's always been. Yeah. Kind of in relation to that, I feel like um, the Tenth Doctor plays into some of the tropes that, because I, as you would know from my introduction, I write erotic fiction. And there are, you know, in the last six to eight years or so, the, um, you know, the paranormal genre and the shapeshifter genre, like it started out in romance, now it's crossing over into erotica and everything's all just one big jumble at this point. And, but the most popular character trope for male characters is the alpha. And if you've got shapeshifter fiction, then that's very, very literal. But it is that kind of, that man who is dominant and domineering and all of that kind of thing, but he still needs to kind of be saved. He still needs the woman. He is not outside from of needing her and he can't escape from needing her as well. And Twilight's a really good example of that as dirty as I feel saying Twilight's a good example of anything um, because Edward needs Bella and it's, it's that same thing. Like, what, what do you have as, um, and especially that sort of teenage girl comparison, which I don't use disparagingly at all, you know, it's about wanting to be needed and wanting to be loved so fiercely as well. And is it just coincidental? Because it really does seem that the Twilight Doctor Who comparisons do seem quite remarkable. I mean, was well, one feeding off the other? Except the fact that Doctor Who doesn't either? break into anybody's bedroom at night, watch them sleep, uh, and, and control knows. who they can and cannot see in the same way that Edward does. Girl yeah. in the fireplace. <coughs> but, but it does seem that wow. there was definitely in the ether, this sort of paranormal romance thing, which... And I couldn't work out, was Doctor Who changing because that was there? Did it change because Doctor Who was there? Did they influence each other? Yeah, I, I kind of wonder if there is a bit of a back-and-forth kind of thing, and because that's... Um, you know, that's what people are consuming in popular culture at the moment. Maybe that has influenced the script writers, whether that is a conscious thing or not. You were talking before about how, you know, characters describing him as magnificent. And I think that's one of the things for that season that, uh, and it happens, you know, throughout his tenure as well, but that really, I think, annoyed me. It's not just, hey, look, we're having a fun time. It's like, I'm having a fun time. I'm the doctor, me, and I'm awesome. And then every other second character that meets him goes, who is that amazing person? Oh, it's the doctor. He's amazing. And then people have already heard of him and they start going, oh, you're amazing. You're the doctor. So it's basically you're amazing and you're the doctor in different combinations from different people constantly throughout that period. And I, and I find that's really weird because you know, he's, he's doing a good job of being awesome and being amazing. Like, when he's on form, like in an episode where there's not too much of that and it doesn't get in the way, he's great. 
You know, like he's animated, he's enthusiastic, he's quirky, he's weird, but not in a you know annoying way, except when it strays over into how great am I and how great are you from other people. And yeah, because this show's been quite negative so far, but a lot more than I was expecting. And yet this is probably you know, the most successful Doctor Who has ever been. So what do you think it is that, that's, that's really resonating with people during this time? Well, well like I said, I think he's really good. When there's not too much of that, and maybe maybe people like that more than me. I, one of the things that I know works for it is there is so much passion that comes from uh, David Tennant's characterisation. This is somebody he kind of your comment earlier about him being the the, the magic dream pixie kind of for the, uh, the male version. Of that I think that's a, a wonderful kind of um, way to describe it because this is a character who lives life with such kind of like. Um, he has so much heart, in this case two hearts, that he, and he just totally commits. There is a real sense of, of joyfulness and glee about um, Tennant's Doctor that I think really resonates. And, um, and oddly enough, having just been re-watching some, uh, some Troughton just recently, as I'm sure many other people have been, there's something perhaps about that sense of adventure um, uh, around uh, the second Doctor that I think we see a bit of in the tenth as well. There's a real kind of let's fling the doors of the TARDIS open and stride out into the world and embrace whatever we, we discover with, with arms open and, and coat billowing dramatically. He's very contemporary as well. I think that's a big draw for Tennant because more than any other Doctor before or since, because Matt Smith doesn't do it as much either, he draws on 20th century popular culture for all his catchphrases and references. Like he mentions Ghostbusters. Um, Which is references a bit painful, it. I have to say, having just rewatched yeah. that episode just recently when um, he's... Yeah, yeah. Which, and Matt Smith does mention Ghostbusters too, but at least they just say it so they don't do a stupid song. But, um, but you know, he does. He does and he, you know, he talks in a modern way. Like, he doesn't talk in a straight... He's, he's eccentric, but not in a way that's inaccessible to modern viewers. I think that's really important, you know. And I, and I enjoyed that about him. I mean, it's... Uh, well, I, and there's all the, like, the, the references to pop songs and uh, uh, quotes from The Lion King and, and, and stuff like that that he weaves into his conversation. You're right, he's very, very contemporary, and that's, that's uh, the, the Russell T. Davis influence, clearly. I really like... Oh, we haven't mentioned it yet, so I want to talk about the ten, Tenet and, and Donna pairing, because that's my favourite. We mentioned Martha's your favourite. But I love it, and, it, like, it has that... The other thing, and we'll get back to this when we talk about relationships, but I think with David Tennant, they kind of try to have their cake and eat it too in terms of is he having a romantic relationship with these characters or not? Because the way he talks about Rose after they're gone, it's very much clearly he misses her, clearly he was in love with her even if he never said it. Like you can't, you can't read their relationship in another way. They clearly love each other. Whether you want to believe that that's platonic or not is up to you, but it's, clearly they love each other. But he still mentions her and, and says things like, oh, she's a friend. You know, when, he's, when there's that awful moment in uh, the Shakespeare Code where they're getting on the bed together and he's like, oh, I wish Rose was here. Rose would know what to Rose do. Rose would know what to do. <laughs> and he's like, I had a friend, you know, Rose. And you're like, oh, he's still referring to her as his friend. Like, he never tells her anything else. So it's almost like they're trying to... It's like they're gay men living in the 1960s. Oh, this is my friend. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Martha, Martha's a big part of, of that, um, that evolution of how he sees that relationship and I love for the record I love Martha when she's written well I think most of the time she's written awfully but in the Shakespeare code and also in Smith and Jones she is smart she is onto it she is funny even in some moments during human nature and the family of blood when she's not you know going why is he in love with me she's um, a bit like Liz Shaw in that regard kind of the um, somebody who should have been such a great character and then the the writers just were like what do we do with this strong woman who's kind of the equal um, that doesn't work in our, in this dynamic and has her own 
own thing going on as well when she joins the Doctor, which is not always the case. Yeah, because when Donna comes in, like the, the, this is what you're talking about. You like it when they have just having a fun adventure, and I like that too when there's peril, but they are having a good time. And Donna's season is like that a lot of the time. Like, he doesn't get to mope around because Donna's busy going, oh, come on, spaceman, don't be an idiot. It's like, look, we're, it's, we're meeting Agatha Christie. It's amazing. Like, uh, and she's super into it the whole time. And then when it gets serious, she doesn't mope about it. She's just like, that's really sad. We've got to do something, you know, and, and she gets on with it and she sort of spurs him to get on with it. And that, so that's, that's my favourite David Tennant season. I love him in that series. And I think he and Donna, they're just so, they're so great together. They are. That relationship is absolutely beautiful, partially because, yeah, there's no, there's no moping, there's no erst. Um, they're, they're just mates having a good time and helped by the fact that you have a really fabulous actor um, playing the, the the companion role, who is she is just so strong and intelligent and forthright and compassionate. And we were talking about story arcs earlier. The fact that kind of Donna's story arc, the way she evolves from uh, from the bride when we first meet her, through to this rich, compassionate, caring, intelligent person who then has, tragically has that all of that taken away from her. It's that's a, a really intriguing arc, and she she's a great. Companion. She's I would say a good she's... moral compass. That's, you know, what I love about her is she sort of, you know, all of these people who say to the doctor, don't travel alone, she's the reason why he shouldn't travel alone because she's just that voice in his head that sort of tells him what to do. That's, you know, human. I wanted to mention something else that I saw sort of showing up a lot in these episodes, which is kind of just interesting because it's, it's quite specific to the Russell TDA's area, but this, this and it's um, to do with uh, prophecy. There are so many prophesizing characters throughout us. Well, I take it you're not talking about characters who are cast as supporting roles who then turn up later as, <laughs> as a lead. No, no, that's no. just coincidence. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Although, no, no, uh, this is more, and, yeah, and yes, you could say it's a lazy writer deliberately trying to put some sort of tension into a script that clearly doesn't have any, but let's, but let's not call it that. Let's call it a theme. Uh, so there's this theme... <laughs> Of people showing up to say things like, you know, soon your song will be ended, or I'm sorry for the loss that will happen, or something will happen towards the end of the series. <laughs> there is something on your back he will knock four times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and there are always these Nostradamus-style things that make no sense until after they've happened, so it's actually useless to have told you in the first place. The knocking four times thing in particular, it's like, well, thanks. Uh, but, it, but it's fascinating, in, in Stolen Earth, there are two scenes in a row, one in which... The crazy Dalek does the whole, he's coming soon and the one that loves him most will die or something. And then the next scene is the... Yeah, that well. Yeah, the from the Shadow Proclamation saying, I'm sorry for the loss, which is to come. And it's just fascinating that it's, it's a real theme throughout this era. It really got my goat for a while because it, every, every, every other episode, someone's telling us what is going to happen in a vague and mysterious way. I'm like, why don't you just... Make tell us the story. That'll get me interested. Don't tell me what's going to happen like six episodes in advance. And and it's and I think the arcs uh, are very up and down because I don't like like the Torchwood thing is really weird. The Torchwood arc in the, his first season because in the sec- again in the second episode, Queen, the Queen comes out and just says, "So Torchwood is this." Now we're going to obliquely mention it as if it's a mystery for every episode between now and when we get to do something with it at the end of the series. Just really just pointless. Um, and then the, it works much better in Martha's season. Another reason to like that season is that, you know, you've got the, the master thing is it is very subtle. Like the fans, of course, we all were like, Mr. Saxon, who's Mr. S- What's the... And someone's like, oh, it's an anagram of master number six. We're like, oh, you spoiled it. <laughs> we all know it's the master. Um, but then he's still, it, you know, that's much more subtle. And then the lost planets thing... 
kind of works. It would have worked better, again, if there wasn't all that prophecy stuff thrown in with it, if it was just those occasional references. Not to mention the bees. The, the bees. The, the bees disappearing the bees. was the one I didn't pick up on. I, I picked up on various other bits and pieces, and when suddenly the bees became a major plot point, I was... What? Really? I had to go back and rewatch all the episodes and, and kind of go, yep, I wasn't paying enough attention. We haven't talked a lot about how you describe the Tenth Doctor's character, what sets him apart from other Doctors. First season was that it seemed to me that they were writing his dialogue exactly the same way they were writing Christopher Eccleston's dialogue. And that you could have exchanged the two actors, they would have given a slightly different performance, but broadly, it would have been the same. This person who's energetic and excited, uh, youthful inside but also older, and then at the same time with this deep anger and loneliness sort of under the surface that would come out. Um, although one of the key differences, I would argue, is that Christopher Eccleston was much better at being angry than David Tennant. You could probably argue that for the 11th Doctor as well, though, so maybe that's just yeah. what modern television Well, I think all three of them are quite... They're more similar than they are different. They're, I think there's less distinction between the modern Doctors than there was with the older ones. Do, do we feel that? I mean, how would you distinguish David Tennant from Eccleston and Well, he's Smith? got great hair. <laughs> but his hair is the same as Matt Smith's. You look at the, he's got the floppy fringe at the no, front. No, David Tennant's is spikier. <laughs> <laughs> Matt Smith's is more floppy. Fair call. You've spent a lot of time on Tumblr, haven't you? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but go on, how would, you, how would you sum him up? What makes him different to other Doctors? Um... I actually find that a really hard question to answer, to tell you the truth, because I have all these not particularly erudite-sounding adjectives, like bouncy. He and Matt Smith both have, like, a really quite manic kind of energy to them, but I feel like Matt Smith is a little bit more focused, um, whereas Tennant is very... um, And I think that is one of the things that appeals as well because when he's, you know, going on adventures, he's excited about things too and, oh, look at that and um, all of that kind of thing. But, yeah, that very... um, He's very curious, I think about the world. Messianic would be one of the, the adjectives that I would use for the, for the Tenth Doctor. Which See, I wish I'd thought of that one. Because um, he, he, there really is a real sense of him kind of wanting to save people. Um, uh, and then that, unfortunately, gets really quite overplayed to the point where everybody in the world is clapping their hands and believing in fairies. Um, <laughs> the, the, that Tinkerbell moment. He floats up in the air. And... Yeah. And he's literally floating out with his arms outstretched yeah. kind of as if he's on a cross. It's, it's just a little bit too literal. Thank you. Yes, Russell T. Davies. We, we, do, do we, we get the point. Um, but kind of, uh, apart from messianic and, and, kind of, and manic... Um, and the interesting thing about his mania is he doesn't have the, the downside. It's almost as if you, if you put the Tenth Doctor and the Ninth Doctor side by side, that's there, your, kind of, your bipolar personality enmeshed in one. You've got the downside and the upside. Because the thing about uh, kind of, uh, mania and, uh, is that you do come down eventually. And so, yes, you have the, the mad, crazy, runabout, shouting excitedly phases, and then you have the, the, the sorrow and the misery and the despair and the angst. And, and really, in some ways, I think that the, you really have to look at those two doctors side by side to see a full personality, perhaps. And again, maybe that's, uh, that could be something deliberate in the writing, uh, or it could be just me kind of wishing that it was something deliberate in the writing. Welcome back. First thing, prizes! Yay! Let's do the prize from last month's show. So we have a copy of Doctor Who. The complete first series with Christopher Eccleston. Ooh. Not with William Hartnell. Confusing. So this 
is for someone who left a comment on the website. On episode 9 slash women. There were a lot of comments. There were. More comments on that episode than any episode we've done previously. So reaching into the TARDIS to tell us the winner of this, thanks to BBC on DVD. Here we go. The winner is... Andrew Mitchell. And remember, you, the audience member currently listening at home through your ears, can also win a copy of Doctor Who, the complete fourth series, by leaving a comment on the website, splendidchaps.com, where you'll find this episode, which is 10 slash sex. 10 slash sex. Not as some people keep erroneously thinking, teen sex. (laughs) (laughs) That's a very different part of the internet. (laughs) That is not us. That's not our podcast. And we also... One more copy, which we will be giving away to the best question. We've had millions of questions. Now, before we do the questions, do you want to plug the next shows? Should we do that now? Because it's going to take a while. Yeah, so uh, November, there's um, like some sort of party or anniversary or birthday or something. I don't know. Um, which so, might be the whole reason we started this crazy ride in the first place. So let's put it this way. This was 11 shows, 11 doctors. So November is our final show, which means, of course, there are only five more chances to see us. That's right. That's right. Um, and those, those are in order. Uh, An extra show at Turak South Yarra Library on November the 16th, where we will be talking about what we learned from Doctor Who um, with guests uh, Rob Lloyd and Liz Barr and, uh, and a special poem from Emily Zoe Baker, performance poet. And that's a cheap ticket, only $10 for that one, which you can find on splendidchaps.com. Find all ticket details. Uh, Then we're also doing a special show at the Melbourne City Library in Flinders Lane, not the State Library, uh, on November the 19th, where we'll be talking about those other Splendid Chaps, The Companions. Uh, And that will be with guests uh, Lucas Testro, who is a director and screenwriter, and also Marion Blythe. Marion Blythe from Triple R. From Triple R. Um, And we will have a musical performance from the wonderful Emma Heaney for that performance, so that's going to be great. Uh, And then uh, our next... uh, Our big episode in uh, in the series of Eleven... is uh, 11 slash future, which is at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image down at Federation Square on November the 21st. That's right. We're going to edit and have that episode up in two days, aren't we, John? Aren't we, John? Yeah. That's going to be awesome, though. We've got a full house band. The Time Lads will be joining us. And the Time Lads will be playing a new song written, composed and sung by Casey Bonetto of Keating the Musical. Uh, and uh, our guests for that episode will be talking about uh, the 11th Doctor and the uh, notion of future, how the future has been depicted in Doctor Who and indeed the future of Doctor Who itself um, will not be... Peter Capaldi will not be a guest. No, that is wishful thinking, sir. He Good might on be you. a little bit busy. He might be busy around that time. Um, but we, uh, we will have as our guests uh, comedian Justin Hamilton uh, and comedian, general media personality, and all-round a wonderful woman, Stella Young, will be our other guest. You may have noticed, because we've been plugging it, uh, that we are running a possible crowdfunding campaign to try and pre-sell enough tickets that we can pay for a show in Sydney. So we're trying to raise enough money uh, in ticket sales that we know it will be at least not costing us any money to go to Sydney and do a show. If that comes off, and um, hopefully uh, we will raise that money, we're 50% of the way there... Uh, and it doesn't end until the 2nd of November. So if you're listening to this podcast, you've still got about a week. Yep, so you're in to, Sydney, um, go buy a ticket. Go buy, a ticket. buy your We'd ticket through Puzzle. Uh, we haven't confirmed the guests yet because, of course, we don't know for sure that we're doing the show. But we can say that Stephen Bajo O'Donnell from Good Game is very keen to come along if he can make it. 
Um, so he is subject to confirmation, but he's keen. Also, um, um, Sydney comedian Alice Fraser is very keen to come along. And there may be some other special guests who we will not... And our final, final show is in December. Yes. Where we're doing a Christmas special. Yes. Again, the time lads will be there allowing us to get through any of the songs we didn't manage to get through <laughs> in the rest of the year. There's a surprising number of them. <laughs> um, that's on December the 15th at the Bella Union, and that's going to go on sale soon. So those are all our shows. There's loads of them. Too many. <laughs> and all details are at splendidchaps.com. Right, now, questions, stuff, tenant, sex. Yeah. Bang. Bam. <laughs> uh, let's start with this one, because we actually worded you two up during the break. The tenant years, marry, snog, avoid, discuss and justify. <laughs> Okay, I've, I've had time to think about this one carefully. So, marry Yanto Jones. I mean, he makes excellent coffee. He's a very loyal and dedicated lover, and I'm sure he'd be kind of nice to live with. And he looks good in a suit. So, yep, so, um, so yeah, marry, definitely. Snog, um, midshipman Alonzo Frame. Those ears you can Popular hang on choice. to when you go in. Uh, and avoid, um, avoid, I think I am, yes, I'm going to avoid Brannigan from Gridlock because I don't like pussy. Oh, oh just... We're sorry, listeners, we're sorry. Just, oh, it's all a bit Mrs. Slocum there at the end. <laughs> How do I follow that? <laughs> So, Amy, tenant years, marry, snog, avoid. Okay, um, marry, I'm going to go for Captain Jack because I feel that he is the woman I would love to be, the man I'd love to be, the whatever, everything. The marrying kind, though, that surprises me a little. I've got a very flexible outlook on this kind of thing. <laughs> uh, snog? Um, I would snog the master. Which one? <laughs> Sexy Saxon. Derek Jacobi. Derek Jacobi. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Saxon. Saxon. Okay, cool. Just the, the number we of actors. Say oh, that's true. True. Okay. Um, avoid um, the robots from the girl in the fireplace because I can't watch that episode without having some really bad psychological responses to it. I just. I don't know, they're digging up something very primal for me. And it's not I'm so pleasant. hoping someone listening to this is going, oh, I would have picked them for snog. <laughs> I'm sure somebody will be. Um, and I think we also decided during the break that one wins a copy of the DVD box set. <laughs> who, whose who question were, was that? Whose question was this? Oh, the, the, at the back there. Right the what back. did you think regarding regeneration equals death? I don't want to go. Was that RTD projecting? Amy. Ugh. <laughs> um, yeah, I was actually, um, I've always kind of been like, oh, you know, he has this, um, you know, he's been quite vocal about how much he's wanted to play this role. And I was like, is that something that's been written for him, something that's sort of been put in? Um, yeah, I feel it was a bit of a projection, frankly. I would actually, I don't want to take back my ugh, because... Um, Too late, it's on the record. Yeah, no, it's damn. No, no But the reason why is, I mean, I didn't like it, but I, I think for the people who really loved David Tennant, for whom he was so their doctor, they loved him in a way that I think few people really kind of latched onto a doctor before. 
And I think they needed it. I think that that was for them. I think it was for the fans. It was like, we know this is upsetting for you. It's upsetting for us too. It was upsetting for me. I cried. I, in fact, I would go to, so far as to say, the first time I watched that episode, I bawled my eyes out. Even though I've, I'm on the record as saying I have some, some objections to, to the, the writing and, the, and, and so on. I was enormously moved by that moment. I, I wept like a baby. I remember crying, going, I've wasted an hour of my life watching this. This is so terribly written. I, I just remembered... I just remember getting really excited. No, no, speak up. We need to have, you know, some sort of audible, yeah, we love Tennant because you boys aren't doing it, that's for damn sure. It was an odd rewriting, though, of Doctor Who mythos to say that the regeneration was death. We hadn't really seen that before. It's always been the same guy. It's death for that personality. Um, so uh, it, I, don't, I don't really have that much and of it, a problem Well, with you know, it. it was directly contradicted by the previous regeneration where as soon as he regenerated, the 10th Doctor is saying to Rose, you know, rewrote, complete rewrite my body every single cell but I'm still the same person still me still me we can still get it on I'm more attractive now aren't I aren't I which I have we'll get to that I hope because I think that's quite a problem but that's um, right. Very briefly, Claudia, I just wanted to point out on behalf of all 15-year-old girls like herself that they're not all like that. So uh, that is... I do apologise. That is a fair point, Claudia. Um, let's move on to the sex. Uh, this is a bunch of questions. They all sort of connect together. Hang on. So. Should we have a bit of foreplay? Or we're just going to go <laughs> let's straight Let's move forward. on to the sex. Lube my house, people. my rules. Um, <laughs> this is not what I signed up for. <laughs> Okay, here's, here's a bunch of questions. I'm going to sort of throw them all together. Now, Damien says, my girlfriend is comfortable with the Doctor being in love, for example, with Rose. As an old-school male Doctor Who fan, I am not. What is the panel's thought? Now, another one, fans complaining about the sexing up of Doctor Who, but would the show still be popular or even on air without it? And from Bianca, do you think that as the Doctor ages, he develops more of a capacity to love? In terms of whether it would have the same appeal... Um, uh, if it didn't have sort of the romance lines, I actually don't think it would, to tell the truth. I must say, I don't think it would be as popular as it has become without, without the romance. I See, my problem when it came in, the reason I... And, I, you know, I wrote about this at the time, um, even during Christopher Eccleston's first season when the kiss first happened at the end, is that I... The objection I had to it was twofold. First of all, Doctor, one of the things that made Doctor Who different from other shows is it didn't have... As, at its heart, as its main relationship depicted in the show, a romantic relationship. Every other drama's got that. Not every mm-hmm. other drama. Well, most other dramas have Six that. Six Million Dollar Man didn't. <laughs> it also didn't have any women in it. <laughs> or indeed any... Maybe, who knows. Uh, but, um, you didn't watch it, did you, Ben? Because you're too young. There, there, was, there was a romance, though, between him and... and... Jamie Summers in various spin-off. Yeah, see, look, don't... Yeah. Yeah, don't, yeah, don't it's no. not the central drive of the show. No. And, and, well, for me, it's certainly the only show I ever watched that was like that, that was, you know, an adventure genre show, was, was Doctor Who. And I felt that when they brought it in, they were making it more like other television. And they did... I mean, they did a lot of other things to it when they brought it back that made it more like other television, and they did that because they wanted it to work in a modern television context and possibly no-one would watch a show that was a four- to six-episode serial... Um, anymore. I don't know. I would try it. Um, but, uh, but um, yeah, so I thought I was kind of disappointed 
in that because I liked the things that made Doctor Who different. They were the things that I liked about the show. But also, I think it's a travelling show. It's a travelling narrative. You've got a central character who never stays in the same place, who has adventures and then moves on. It's like, you know, it's like the old Incredible Hulk or the Fugitive or the Littlest Hobo. He just keeps moving, right? (laughs) And if any of those characters were trying to have a romantic relationship, it wouldn't work because they've got a drive to keep moving forever. Especially the Littlest Hobo. Yeah. (laughs) If, If you met Lassie, it would just be terrible. He's got a drive to keep going forever, to never stop moving and traveling and adventuring. But as they seem to be trying to say to Rose during his first season, you can't do that. And I thought, and this is the other reason why that annoyed me that season, is that I thought they were doing a thing where Rose was going to grow up and realise that, you know, it's cool to have any kind of relationship you want and to consider it a, a success, but this is not a normal circumstance and I cannot actually, in a practical way, spend the rest of my life with this guy. And it's all very romantic and awesome, but is it really what I want and I thought she was going to have a think about it and say no when of course what happened was she had to think she didn't think about it really uh, and then just had it taken away from her in this sort of big you know melodrama tragic moment which you know and it was quite affecting I was upset by it Um, but yeah I felt like it was just sort of making it more like other shows and and then also there's that narrative reason why he doesn't have relationships because they're not going to work out you're just setting it up to fail and that's kind of upsetting well one of the things I think we need to look at in the history of the show is that clearly the Doctor has had relationships in the past. He has a granddaughter. And that's established in the very first episode right from the word go. He's had a relationship. He's had sex. He has a granddaughter. See, but I, uh, I, I, but, just, yeah, I just need to question that because I grew up in the country and any woman of my mother's age was an auntie. You know, I actually, I don't, because I don't for a minute believe that the granddaughter was the granddaughter. And in fact, I think anyone from New Zealand would kind of go, yeah, they're all just aunties. Like, it's just, it's a term. It is a term, but at the same time, we're talking about a show that's created in England in, in, the, ni- in the early 1960s, where that kind of extended family, the, the fact that, yes, anybody can be an auntie or an uncle, there's a lot of those, but grandfather and granddaughter are very specific, culturally loaded terms. So... Let, if we accept the notion that kind of that, that is the case, then okay, the, the doctor has had presumably a wife, um, they've and they've had children. He has a granddaughter now. What I find really intriguing about Doctor Who fandom is that when. Um, uh, the, the whole notion of looms were invented in the in the novel Lungbarrow. Kind of, it's like okay, time lords haven't reproduced for years by via biological means. Let's just retcon kind of the idea of a granddaughter, uh, and people seem to accept that quite happily. But they get really angry that Sarah Jane's relationship with the Doctor has been retconned, uh, and that does piss them off. The, the, what intrigues me is the way that kind of fandom, and I obviously I include myself in that, some things we accept and go, yep, yep, we like that idea. Other things we go, oh, no, that jars with me personally, so therefore I don't accept it. To come back to one of the questions about the, the Doctor getting more open to the idea of love as he has, has aged and gone through progressive regenerations, I think he started out much more open to relationships and then lost that ability over the course of regenerations because, as we've seen, OK, so uh, the first Doctor gets engaged by drinking cocoa, as I recall. Um, the... Happens to the best of us. <laughs> The second Doctor um, in the first episode of uh, The Enemy of the World is flirting. Um, I think he's more being flirted at and enjoying it. But yes, it was interesting watching that the other day going, oh, you're actually quite enjoying having having Astrid 
Yeah. Sort of say nice um, and like he, he also, the second Doctor also flirts with Jamie. Um, they hold hands all there's the time. A, there's lots of hand-holding. And again, in the first episode of The Enemy of the World, when they see Salamander, the Doctor's double, the Doctor, one of the lines he uses is, he's, he's also quite handsome, isn't he? And Jamie puts his hand on the Doctor's shoulder and squeezes it and smiles. It's this <laughs> kind of like beautiful little moment. And I love, I love the... And, I, and obviously, yes, I'm not trying to suggest that there's a, um, a same-sex relationship going on between uh, the Doctor and Jamie, it'd be a great slash fiction piece to write, and I'm sure someone has. Pretty sure Tumblr's already suggested. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was more interested in the, in the idea of a slash fiction between Jamie and Sergeant Benton, but... Um, um, but, but, yeah, there's kind of like... Those earlier Doctors, I think, were... There, sex was there. Uh, it's just a lot more overt than perhaps we're used to seeing it, and that's partially the culture of the times. Um, the, the kitchen sink drama movement that started putting sex and working class stories and real people on stage hadn't really impacted on TV at this stage. So you just didn't do it. You had to be covert. You had to be gentle and sly. I have no problems with sex being in the show, but I, just, I don't want it to be the doctor. So, you know, companions, other people, Amy and Rory, you know, I'm fine with all that. It's just... Partly he is hundreds and hundreds of years old. And partly I think it makes him mundane. I think it makes him boring. Because like you were saying, he's like everyone else. And he's like every other straight character on television. If he's having sex. New Earth tells us he has a penis. Really? Do we need to know that? Was that important, New Earth? Russell T. Davies was saying, I've never confirmed a penis on the Doctor before. (laughs) But if you look really closely at the action figures... (laughs) But we've talked about this, I think, in some of the other episodes. We're uncomfortable with the Doctor in a um, romantic sense because of the idea that he's like your father. Um, But someone else also suggested that he was like... He's like your favourite teacher at high school. Um, And that makes it icky as well, unless you had some of the teachers that I had. (laughs) Pretty sure that's still icky, actually, <laughs> and inappropriate. Because quite apart from the age imbalance, there's a tremendous power imbalance. Like the Doctor, particularly in the new series, is depicted as having the powers of a god, essentially. Like he can control time, he can do whatever he wants. I mean, you look at the end of um, Human Nature, the Family of Blood. He spared them because if he didn't spare them, he could just do these amazing. Like it was like the end of a Neil Gaiman story, which I I love Neil Gaiman stories, but the Doctor is not that guy. Like that was really weird. But at the same time, that's how the new series sees him as this guy, this person who has godlike power. That is, is it incredibly inappropriate for someone with that amount of power to be having a relationship with someone who is, say, you know, like Rose, a 17 or 16 year old girl who is still figuring out who she is in the world and who is, of course, smitten with this guy who's turned up in a TARDIS, who looks hot, who wears cool suits, who can take her anywhere in time and space. He's got a car. It's so... (laughs) (laughs) It's really hard. Really hard to say no to someone like that. And when you look at some of... I mean, we talked about this last month when we talked about Christopher Eccleston, um, how when you look at the way he treats Rose, particularly when he's inviting her in at the start, it has a lot of the hallmarks and characteristics of an abusive relationship. And because of that power imbalance, it's really hard to see it as an equal and therefore, you know, healthy relationship, I think. But Amy and Richard, though, because you're more sort of... You've come from the new series, you came in from the old one. So sex in Doctor Who generally, do you have any particular yes-no reaction to that? As a general thing, um, I'm fine with it. Um, I do get a little bit sick of, you know, that it just feels like everybody's always falling in love with the Doctor all the time and that's what he's there for and of course you would and it just gets tired and it's like... 
people can have other responses to him, surely. It's not just, you know, it's not just to go back to the question we had before, it's not just, you know, snog or avoid. Um, you know, there's other um, ways that people can relate to him as well. And, like, I remember being quite annoyed in um, uh, the fifth season where, um, you know... Amy pounces on him and wants to make out with him. And I'm like, that was really jarring for me. Like, it didn't feel true to the character or, like, to her character. Um, and I know, you know, she's an impulsive character and all that sort of thing, but I was just like, why? That did seem an odd moment. I remember thinking whether that was their... It, it felt... It felt a bit in that first series, which is my favourite of the, the new Who series, is that is that first Matt Smith series. It felt like a lot of it was um, Stephen Moffat trying to just show that he wasn't going to do some of the stuff that we got used to, even down to the joke in the first episode where the Doctor uses a radio to find out what's going on rather than flicking through TV channels because that had become the, the default was the news talking heads. Um, and I wondered if that was him sort of getting rid of the sex in, in, a, in, a, in a weird way, but it was, it was an odd scene. It was a very odd scene. Well, it's an odd scene when you take into account as well that that's the night before her wedding and also just that he's her imaginary friend from childhood, so I do find that sort of, that a little bit creepy. Yeah. It's almost like, it's like, on, you know, HBO supposedly has a quota of breasts they have to show in every show that they make. So maybe in Doctor Who there's like a quota of how many people want to or do actually snog the Doctor. And so Amy had to do it yeah, for the somebody quota. had to. For the good of the show. For the, for the quota. <laughs> Take that bullet. If, if, if I was having to line up to snog Matt Smith for the good of the show, then that would be a different story. Um... <laughs> It, it, the whole notion of, of sex in a children's t- in what is a, a, a children's TV show, a family TV show, is, is going to be problematic. It's always going to be a slightly difficult area to explore. Um, but again, kind of going back to some of the earlier kind of stories, it's always been there. Um, I uh, watched uh, The Ice Warriors again recently, and there's a great scene in that where Jamie's kind of like reclining on a couch with his arms behind his head um, uh, and chatting to Victoria, um, and he, he <laughs> says something along the lines of, did you see, oh, I've got some, not something along the lines of, I've written it down. Um, Victoria, did you see how those lassies were dressed? Um, yes, I did, and I trust you to think of something like that. You don't see yourself dressing like that, do you? And he, he eyes her up and down. It, it's, it's a very overt, very sexual moment. And Those two are always eyeing each other off. Well, well, to be fair, it's mostly Jamie is always eyeing Victoria off. Yeah. And there is a scene in the Romans, too, which seems quite clearly that Barbara and Ian have just had sex. Oh, the the post-coital yeah. lying around drinking when wine. When the Doctor and Vicky have gone off to Rome yeah. and they're just in the... They're in a villa in Rome by themselves. Why wouldn't they? What I find more interesting in Doctor Who is the, the alternative kind of representations of sexuality that, that are into it. And I would say the queerest character in all of Doctor Who over its 50 years is from 1972's The Curse of Peladon, Alpha Centauri. <laughs> <laughs> you have... Um, Character, it's a fan the in the audience. <laughs> well, for starters, the costume is a giant penis with arms. And then the director went, it's a giant penis with arms. So the costume designer put a cloak on it. 
it's a male actor wearing the costume, a female actor providing the voice, and the and the doctor himself describes Alpha Centauri um, as the, um, the the hermaphroditic hexapod. So this is our first kind of intersex character kind of on Doctor Who, and this is 1972. This is fantastic. It is so queer, um, and I I love that character, and it's a great story as well. There's a lovely story. I think it's Lady Main was the director off the top of my head um, in that story. Lady uh, Main. Yeah. Lady Main Australian, and apparently they brought Alpha Centauri out, and he went, looks like a prick. <laughs> and they went back, and they put a cloak on it, and the brought back, and he said, looks like a prick in a cloak. <laughs> <laughs> Which... <laughs> Which bless you, Lady Main. That is actually a fair point, though. That, and actually, yeah, for 1972, that would have been quite groundbreaking for a lot of kids watching, I imagine. Yeah, well, the, the, the whole notion of a hermaphrodite um, would have, I'm sure, in some households, maybe a, a, kind of like it was the equivalent of when the Sex Pistols said fuck on British television for the first time, somebody may have put their boot through the TV screen or at least turned it off going, we're not having that kind of discussion. <laughs> not in this house. Well, or, or would they? Because it was in a science fiction context and they're not, you know, I mean, it's, it's like a subtle way. And sci-fi or any kind of speculative fiction or fantasy has always been a great way to bring in these kind of, you know, ideas that the mainstream seems to be having trouble uh, accepting. So you sort of have these progressive things where because it's an alien doing it or because it's an imagined society on another world, you can talk about it. But if you talked about it in a show that was, say, set in London and it was the modern day, people would go, well, we don't know, that's weird, we don't like it. It's just frustrating that these science fiction shows, which should be progressive, still they can imagine a society in which um, and we can time travel and spaceships and so forth, but they can't imagine societies where sexism has been eradicated, for yeah. example. That's or where marriage is, is a different, you know, is not, is not the traditional concept that's been around forever. It's, it's broadened and, and makes more sense. Yeah, I mean, in coming back to gridlock again, yes, we have a, um, an older kind of lesbian couple in gridlock, um, oh. but, yeah, they're still married. It's kind of they like... have a very standard heterosexual style... Um, they, also, they also have their relationship is actively dismissed as a joke within that episode. But it is also very much in keeping with the way older lesbians' relationships have been portrayed historically as well. Mm. Um, the ladies of Langollen um, in the uh, Victorian period who would kind of like, they were, I mean, wonderfully eccentric kind of lesbian couple. They, they nailed poems to trees and, and great stuff like that. And, yeah, they were, they were just friends or, you know, or sisters or, or so on. So Flatmates. Flatmates. <laughs> <laughs> well, while we're going on this road too, Captain Jack then. What are our thoughts on, on Captain <sighs> Jack? While Richard recovers, Amy, how about we haven't heard from you before? How about what do you think of Captain Jack? Um, I kind of I like him as a character, obviously, because I would marry him. Um, I, I like him as comic relief. I, I enjoy watching him when he's on the screen. Um, but that whole oh, you know, he's he's from a time where you know sexuality and gender that's not you know seen as the same way that we have um that we see it here which is why you know he's so fluid um I don't entirely buy that when everything else does still seem to be you know portrayed as being relatively the same to how we have it here that said I he's a little bit of a hero his pickup line is hello <laughs> um we all wish 
Look, I adore Captain Jack as a character, particularly when we first meet him. That first iteration of Captain Jack in series one is, is in many ways my favourite because, and that's the, the Captain Jack I would like to have seen more, explored more, um, the, that backstory, that character, rather than the, the, the Captain Jack who we end up with in Torchwood. Um, because yeah, he's he's a dashing rogue, um, and the the sheer fact of watching Doctor Who uh, and when he's kind of going mm, nice bottom, looking through the binoculars, and is it algae who's with him? Is I say, oh man, there's a time and a place, and oh, you've got a nice bottom too. It's kind of like that acknowledgement. That was just that was such a delight, and I think such an important moment, cultural touchstone in terms of moments in television where um, you could say, yes, you've got uh, a gay director, a gay producer. They are making this show. Yes, they do have a gay agenda, and that agenda is to include references to sexuality and alternative sexualities in mainstream television. Um, and, yeah, and plus, it's kind of hot. <laughs> I, was, I, I had a slight problem with him, um, which is, I mean, mostly because I see him as being the 21st equivalent, century equivalent of, of Mr Humphreys from How You Being Served. Like, I don't... <laughs> Because the whole kind of, oh, who were misses? Um, it occurred to me that day, if we found out he was a virgin, I would be not at all surprised. <laughs> it's always yeah, the ones who see, talk it the makes most. sense, doesn't it? Going, yeah, he talks about it an awful lot. <laughs> and, yeah, I don't know. I, the weird thing with Captain Jack is, is that on screen, this whole sort of pansexual breaking down the barriers makes me think it's making gay people more invisible. Like, it always feels to me like it's going, you know, in the future, everyone will be like straight people with some stuff. Shut up. You know, it just feels a bit like, you know, the gay people will be invisible or have vanished or get killed by the end of the story, which does happen quite a lot, in, especially in, in that era. Um, and, yeah, and Captain Jack to me is the safe exploration of that. The one thing I do find exciting about Captain Jack, though, was that he was an action figure that kids were buying. And it's weird that as an action figure, I think he's far more interesting. The fact that parents were clearly okay with their kids having an action figure of a bisexual character. I thought that, weirdly enough, the merchandising, I thought, was actually more forward-thinking than the stuff on the television. You're assuming that it was the kids buying the merchandise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think there's an awful lot of adults with a Captain Jack on their shelf. The thing I think about Captain Jack, and I, this is something I'll talk more about in the future episode when we do that, but he's from 3,000 years in the future, where in his first episode, and I agree, he's much better when he first comes in than he is later, but when, in his first, when the Doctor describes it, he's where he comes from, you know, it doesn't matter. Like, humans of any gender, uh, non-humans, it doesn't matter to Captain Jack. But the way he's presented is very much the kind of the stereotypical image of a gay man, except he's bisexual. So he just he just wants to shag everyone. But I, it's really important to have bi visibility on on TV because bisexual characters are so often kind of written out of shows or they they they're turned straight or they're killed off. Um, uh, so I think it, it's really really important to have kind of um, a strong kind of action figure, and he's an action figure. He's a he's an action hero uh, in a in a bi in a, in a bisexual but, role. But would not a gay figure have been better at this point? It's not like gay visibility is all over television. And doesn't making him omnisexual kind of defang that a bit? Not for me. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> What's the next question, John? Regarding the supposedly creepy age difference problem, would this seem different if the Doctor was played by Olivia Coleman and the companion a younger man of Rose's age, say, Noel Clarke? So, right. so, yeah, if we swap the genders... I think, well, I think the realistic answer to that is it would seem less creepy, but it shouldn't seem less creepy. 
Because I think our society has this weird thing where, you know, it's okay for men to be sexual at any point. Women are only allowed to be sexual in certain circumstances. And one of those, and it's a fairly newish phenomenon, I think, is that sort of whole idea of the cougar, you know, the older woman who gets a younger man. Yeah, that's my answer is I think that it wouldn't be, but it should be just as creepy. What do you think? Um, I actually agree with that because I think that is how it would have been seen and that's hugely, hugely problematic to me as well. Um, just as a general thing? Yeah, agreed. The, um, the notion... Uh, there's something that is somehow fetishised about a younger man being deflowered by an older woman. It's supposed to be a natural part of a young man's upbringing. But if you're a, kind of a teenage boy who's seduced by a, a, a 40 or a 50-year-old woman, for example, that is going to have ramifications and, and an impact on the, the healthy development of your sex life. So it, it's, it's just... Just as uh, just as weird and, and just as creepy, yeah. but somehow slightly more socially acceptable. Yeah, and I feel like um, part of that is that I think um, men are assumed to have like sexual agency from a much younger age um, than women are, and that you know the second the hormones kick in, you know you must want it and all that sort of thing. And that's obviously not the experience of. Um, you know, every man out there. If there was a female doctor, because a lot of problems I have with this heterosexualization. He can't even say the word. I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm right here. <laughs> this new heteronormativity um, of, of the show, because I do think when the show came back, I think it's a much straighter show than it ever was before. And, and again, I th- you've got a copy of Queer's Dig Time Lords there, which I've written an essay in. But I talk about how gay characters... Um, tend to die. You know, it's, it's that sort of show, but no gay male couple, I think, has survived Doctor Who. And like, the Doctor has this sort of hand-wavy thing where he includes gay relationships, like, you know, when he meets Shakespeare and Shakespeare is flirting with Martha, he says, can we leave the flirting till later? And Shakespeare says, is that a promise? And he goes, oh, 57 academics just punched the air. Like, he'll accept that it could be. And in Tooth and Claw, um, when they turn up at the house and nobody's seen... The um, you know the, his wife the the, the landlord's wife, um, but all there's the, all these the, the tall, bald, servants. muscular servants. He's like, I just thought you were happy. And yeah. It's like, but again, it's that thing of it's sort of a gag. It's always it's a in, gag, in the thing. Yeah. It's on the edges, and basically, it's put homosexuality into the show, but put them on the extreme edges. Whereas <coughs> my argument is that before then, there was no sexuality in the show at all, which meant that everyone could fill in what they wanted. Yeah. But I was going to say, though, but if you had a female doctor, I think that actually gets exciting again. I'm actually invested in the, in the romance. If the doctor becomes a woman and I go, oh, the doctor's now a woman, the doctor has been in love with women in the past, that automatically makes the doctor interesting again. Like, the doctor is no longer a heterosexual, the doctor is now something more. For starters. Yeah. And then also, obviously, not just heterosexual. And, and to me, yeah, that, that sort of gets rid of some of what I find to be the more prosaic Aspects. Do you feel that maybe Madame Vastra and Jenny are like a bone that's been thrown at people? I, I, I would like a spin-off of them, which I know there's always oh, been talked about. I would about. watch the hell out of that. Yeah, I think they'd actually be great as mm. a spin-off series. I worry that Madame Vastra and Strax as well um, are taking the threat out of these kind of what were monsters because um, monsters have played such a big part in Doctor Who, and now Strax is a is a comedic character. Suddenly, the Sontarans are something to be laughed at. They're not a threat. Strax um, is an emasculated Sontaran, and I think it's yeah. Important. And why is he emasculated? Because he was a nurse. Yeah. So it's 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 playing into you know standard assumptions of gender and roles and workplace as well. But it's funny because he's shouty. Yeah. 
And it's also funny because they can call him stupid all the time and they can call him a dwarf and they can call him a goblin. Like, they come up with all these quite... It's quite ableist language that they use about him, in fact. But on that note with um, him being a nurse, Rory's a nurse, and initially oh, we, we talked about this in the last episode about him being, uh, I guess, emasculated until he got a big sword. Um, but when they do go back and start living, you know, the normal life, there's that scene in the hospital where they're like, you're the best ever nurse, we can't do without you, you've got to come back here full time. So, you know... They're, they're when he's introduced, funny. though, isn't that the joke that Rory is a nurse which is not as good as a doctor? Yeah. And, and Martha is introduced as a trainee doctor. I think there's always a sense of trying to set these people up, but they are... And that's also... I mean, that's, that is a trope, though, too, that you, you're allowed to give a male character a, a feminine role or a feminine job if they are then the absolute best at it, like they're clearly better than everyone else because then it's less emasculating. Like, I think that's a trope that you see in a lot of things. Now, we're actually running out of time. We're going to speed through these and then we have a musical act as well. So here we go. Questions for Amy and Richard. If the Doctor had a one-night stand, with which companion would it be? Um, the Brigadier. Why not? <laughs> but which Doctor? <laughs> all of them. Yeah. <laughs> Splendid chaps, all of them. <laughs> That's what they were wearing. <laughs> Ben, have you been hanging out at the lead? Amy, <laughs> Doctor? Um, so I mentioned before about um, the Doctor being sort of set up as a bit of an alpha male character and um, the companion that plays off this the most and that I find really irritating because the Doctor's just a dick to this character is Mickey Smith. Yeah. I think they just need to hug it out. <laughs> yes. Oh, I, I don't know why I'm so pleased by that, but I am. Um, I think it's because I really like Mickey. He's an interesting character, and he just gets treated like absolute shit. He gets the absolute shit. Except for that one episode where Christopher Eccleston's like, no, you're all right, really. The Doctor seems to always be saying, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. Do you think he would also say this during the act of mating? <laughs> That's just a dirty, dirty joke from the audience. There's no need to actually answer that one. I don't think we need to comment. Okay, so final question, because we need to wrap it up. The Tenth Doctor definitely seems far more aware and embracing of his own sexuality. For example, I've just been snogging Madame de Pompadour, or yep, still got it, when he's kissed by Cassandra and Rose's body. While both the Ninth and Eleventh seem far more ignorant, avoidant... Is that a real word? No idea. Avoidant of all things sex. Why the dramatic difference, do you think? I'm actually... I, I was just watching the, uh, the episode where they discover who... Oh, spoilers. Ah, no, you all know. Um, where River Song's identity and how she came about, um, you know, them having sex on a TARDIS automatically changes her DNA. Uh, hand wave. Um, <laughs> I've but, taught you so much science. <laughs> I, I, the doctor couldn't even say the word. Like, it, it was back to that, you know, it's a children's show. We can't say that, oh, they were having sex. It was their wedding night and we all know what that means. And Yeah, 11, it certainly, it, they don't seem to address it as uh, overtly as as Tennant does, it's as I if think. The, the, the sex in the TARDIS reached its apex with Tennant and they've just decided to move away from it. And to do that, they've created this much more childish character who is still kind of ancient and wise and, and so forth. But he's just not interested in that kind of thing. Instead of kind of... The, the, the 10th Doctor might want to have sex with Rose. The 11th Doctor would probably just, I don't know, want to play Monopoly with her or something. Did... 
River and the Doctor have their honeymoon? Because I don't think they did. Like, I don't think there was ever anything happening there. Well, they didn't even there. really get married. Well, you, well do, you do run into a weird problem, though, with the River 11 dynamic, where they seem to be trying to imply stuff is happening in between episodes while then in the show itself making him that childlike figure. And it's kind of, it's odd. She makes a couple of references which clearly meant to imply they've been having sex later on. And certainly in the, the um, little webisodes are far more overt with that sort of stuff on the show itself. And so, again, yeah, I don't know why. I, I would say because the webisodes are something that you have to buy and watch for yourself. It's not, uh, they're not as mass market entertainment in the way that TV is. So that, um, we're watching the webisodes but um, the and, and particularly on the DVDs, but the six-year-olds are sitting down and watching TV with mum and dad. I think I always wondered if it was a thing that, because when she's introduced in Science of the Library, like, it does seem clear that it's, it's a marriage, it's a sexual relationship, that it's almost like the show's moved away from that, but that is left with this sort of carry-on. Yeah, I think as a sort of further point, to, like, she's so flirtatious and, like, just the way that, you know, she uses her face and, like, the Hello Sweetie line, which by the time of, you know, the name of the Doctor is just kind of this, we chuck it in there because it's a catchphrase, but initially it's a little bit, oh, what's, you know, it has a bit more meaning, I think, at the beginning and it shows a little bit more of the sauciness of her character and the relationship that she has with the Doctor. Well, that goes back, the thing about him being childish, though, I think goes back to the, the, the character's history of being sexual or not because nearly all the Doctors, with a few exceptions, like probably the third Doctor, the first Doctor, the ninth and tenth, are very childlike in their attitude. They are like a child in an adult's body, which I think is a large part of the appeal of the character to a younger audience, certainly why I latched onto it. And I still like that aspect of the character, which is probably why I latched onto Matt Smith so much. But um, And that means that, you know, you might like girls, but you don't think about them. You don't have a developed sexuality. You don't understand really what it means. And you know they're kind of icky. Yeah. Also, the Doctor would never play Monopoly. It's the worst game ever made. <laughs> <laughs> but would, would the Doctor play Doctor Who Monopoly or would that create a paradox? Uh, Ben and I played Doctor Who Monopoly the other night. Along, Did it create a paradox? Along with, along with David, our, our sound engineer, and, uh, and Lucas Testro. And, uh, yeah, and my at the love end... of Doctor Who did not conquer my hatred. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think the Doctor would play? Boggle? Or... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Boggle, Scrabble. He'd probably a Eurogamer. Obviously, we can talk about sex all night, but uh, sadly we have no time to continue. Please thank our guests, Amy Nichols and Richard Watts. We do have one more bit of business before we get our musical act up on the stage, which is, of course, for Eleven Future, we are going to have some homework for you. So, Petra, would you like to tell people? Your homework, should you choose to accept it, is the following. For a look at Matt Smith's Eleventh Doctor, just before he leaves us forever, we recommend The Eleventh Hour, Vincent and the Doctor, and The Girl Who Waited. For a trip into the future as envisioned by Doctor Who, visit the worlds of the enemy of the world... Day of the Daleks, Frontios, The End of the World, and Utopia. It's also very exciting to put Enemy of the World on our Isn't homework it, list. <laughs> Isn't it? And it, you know what? It's still the future because is, is it like set in 2018? Well, her, her, her helicopter license expires in 2018. So it's sometime around yeah. now. Ooh, yeah, how long is a helicopter license? To see the world of Enemy of the World, people. <laughs> a time when Doctor Who comes to Australia. Um, so, here to sing a song which 
Well, do we want? We don't want to spoil it with the title, do we? <laughs> well, I, I will eventually. You will. <laughs> yeah, but in the song, so it's not so much a spoiler. Oh, I, I suppose. Yeah, let, let, let's keep it a secret then. Okay, great. <laughs> Here to sing their song they wrote about Doctor Who, sort of, is Blue Turtle Shell. <laughs> I almost forgot the most important part. Oh, you did. Okay, now it's really stunning. The other night, the one where Donna and the doctor fought the giant killer bees. And I got me thinking, man, when I was forced to date a man, then surely he would be the one for me. Cause we'd fly around in our starters through the rips of space and time. Through it all, I'd know that I'd be his and he'd be mine. Oh, doctor, won't you mend my broken heart? Tell me that we'd never be apart. The world is a shot with the penance. The man love that would come from David Tennant Intelligence a match You know he showed me a catch The sonic screwdriver to save me from despair And although I must disclose That he may have a thing for Rose We're too surely he'd have one heart to spare And we'd fly around in his harness For the rifts of space and time would all I know that I'd be his and he'd be mine oh, Doctor, won't you mend my broken heart And tell me that we'd never be apart The worries that shine with the penance For the man love that would come from David Tennant Heterosexual man crush that I had on David Shannon. Thank you very much. <laughs> I think thank you to Splendid Chaps for having us too. You guys are awesome. <laughs> Blue Turtle Show, ladies and gentlemen. And that brings us to the end of another Splendid Chaps. And so we all must say, 
Thank, Thank you. you. It's good. Keep warm. You have been listening to Splendid Chats. We'd like to thank this episode's Splendid Chaps, Amy Nichols, Richard Watts, and Blue Turtle Shell. Your hosts were Ben McKenzie and John Richards. The audio engineering and theme tune were created by the technical wizardry of David Ashton from Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us at SplendidChaps.com and at Splendid Chaps on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Petra Elliott, and until next time, thank you. It's good. Keep warm.